So we have been journeying through the Shadowlands, talking about difficult times in our lives. And to be honest, um, the church hasn't always been good at talking about those times, right? So very often we want people to sort of pretend like things are okay when they go through difficult times. And, and uh, so I wanted to take some time in this series to have some conversation, to have people reflect a little bit on the difficult parts of life. Um, because in many ways, those are the times that shape us the most, right? Those are the times that impact us the most. To do that, we're going to a, a, today we're going to a very strange passage, but one of my favorite passages in the scriptures. This scene of Elijah in the cleft of the rock. The text begins, Ahab told Jezebel what Elijah had done. I'm going to have to tell you what Elijah has done for you to understand as well. So, uh, Elijah is a prophet of God, and he has been speaking out against King Ahab and King Jezebel. They are the kings of Israel, but at that time, that's the king and queen of Israel, but at that time, Israel means the northern half of Israel. It's two countries. There's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Now, Jezebel has brought in worship of a Canaanite god, Baal. And you hear Baal described quite a bit in the scriptures. He's a Canaanite and Phoenician god. He's a warrior god. These are actual statues found. Um, and he's often holding uh, what would be a lightning bolt, uh, as if he's going to strike. He is the god of rain, the god of thunder. Um, you can see this is an altar to Baal that they have found in Meg at Megiddo. Uh, a city in Israel. We find these uh, all over the place. This was the worshipped God. He was the God, because he was the God of rain, he was the God of fertility. Okay, Because if co crops are going to grow, the soil had to be fertile, and the fertile soil came from the God of fertility. So, uh, Baal worship included all kinds of acts of fertility. I'm not going to describe here. Uh, human sacrifice was a part of Baal worship, uh, cutting yourself to let your blood out uh, onto the altar of Baal was very, very common if you were pleading with, with Baal, um, all kinds of self-wounding, that kind of thing. And Jezebel has brought this kind of worship into Israel, and uh, this is happening in Israel's uh, places of worship. Okay, this is happening with Israel's people, and God is not happy about it. So he brings Elijah to tell them that they shouldn't be doing that, except they know they shouldn't be doing that. And so Elijah is a wanted man. There is a, a, a bounty out on his head. Jezebel has also killed a hundred Jewish prophets in order to make way for these prophets of Baal. And what God has done in punishment through the prophet Elijah is he's, he's put together, he's put in a three-year drought. So they're on year three of a drought. It is the perfect way to critique the God of rain, right? Oh, we start worshiping the God of rain, and then for three years, there's no rain, okay? Which means there's no crops, okay? And at this point, three years in, the poor are especially vulnerable right now, but everybody's starting to starve, okay? Everybody's having to sell whatever they have to try to get food, um, So Elijah moves towards a showdown on Mount Carmel, Okay, these are pictures from Mount Carmel. From Mount Carmel, uh, these are pictures I took from Mount Carmel. Okay, Mount Carmel is really far in the north. You can see just about the entire uh, Jezreel Valley or the Valley of Armageddon from there. Okay, so that northern nation of Israel, the northern part of Israel, 
Almost everybody can see Mount Carmel on a clear day. Okay, almost the whole people, everybody in that part of Israel can see Mount Carmel. So Elijah has this showdown with 250 prophets of Baal and a number of prophets to another god. They each get their altar, and the prophets of Baal go first. And they all day are crying out, yelling, dancing, doing whatever they can to, uh, to worship their god and to try to bring down fire to burn the sacrifice that's on the altar that they've made. As the day goes on, they get more into it, and they begin cutting themselves and offering their own blood, and they keep going and going, and Elijah starts to tease them. Maybe your God's sleeping. Maybe your God is on vacation. He's not here. He can't hear you. He's too far away. And then it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah takes his altar and covers it, builds an altar with the 12, 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel, and then puts, puts the, the wood on it, and then he totally douses it in water so that it is wet. And he prays to God, and fire comes down from heaven and burns not only his altar, but then begins to burn the other altars as well. Now think about this. If he's up on Mount Carmel, the whole nation can see fire come down from heaven to burn these altars. And it starts burning not just the wood. It starts burning the stones. It starts burning everything. I guarantee you that the people who have been there have never seen anything like that. So the Israelite people that are there, they get riled up and they decide that uh, it's these false prophets that are the problem. Uh, this is the statue on Mount Carmel. It's Elijah with a knife as part of the group that then kills the false prophets of Baal, remember who had replaced the killed prophets of Israel. So once the prophets are slain, he goes back up the mountain, prays six times, and then on the seventh time, uh, each time he asks his servant, do you see anything on the horizon over the Mediterranean Sea? And he says, no, no, I don't see anything. I don't see anything. Finally, on the seventh time, his servant sees something like a cloud looking like a hand opening up. And the rain clouds start to form after three years over the Mediterranean. And uh, Elijah says to King Ahab, you better go ahead down because once the rain starts, you're not going to be able to get your chariots out of here. And they go back and the, uh, in front of the entire nation of Israel, flame from heaven comes down and then this three-year drought is ended in response to the prayers of Elijah. Now, I don't know what your best day ever was. I don't know what your best win ever was. Think back of the most victorious day you've ever had. But, but of all the days I've ever heard of, of all the great moments in the scripture, Elijah's got to be up there, right? Okay, there has never been a bigger victory than this one. Okay, on a mountain where the entire nation can see, fire comes down, a three-year drought ends, all your enemies are destroyed. Elijah, you win. And so Elijah goes towards Jezreel, the capital city of that nation of Israel. Now, why would he do that? I mean, he was a marked man. That would like somebody be somebody who was wanted marching in proudly to Washington, D.C., Right? Well, if you're on America's Most Wanted list, that is the place you don't want to go. But that's exactly what Elijah does. And he must be figuring, I won. Right? 
He's got to figure two things, either two things are going to happen. Either Ahab and Jezebel are going to repent and they're going to go say, I'm sorry, Elijah, and uh, they're going to follow the one true God who is now obviously the one true God. Or the people of Israel are going to rise up and rebel against Ahab and Jezebel, right? He's won. It's over. It's over. But it's not over. Because Jezebel makes a threat when she hears about what happened. And she says, may it be to me like it was, uh, may, may I be dead by tomorrow if you're not laying in a pit just like those prophets of Baal you slaughtered. Okay, she doubles down on his uh, uh, bounty. So the repentance doesn't come and the people don't respond with revolution. This has actually no effect on Jezebel and on the city of Jezreel. Nothing. It does nothing. And Elijah in despair, there he is, he runs away. Despairing. He goes out in the wilderness and he leaves his servant. Now Elijah doesn't have a lot of money. Elijah doesn't have a servant because he's wealthy. He has a servant because he's a prophet. What he's doing, you understand, is he's letting go of his staff. Okay? He said, I don't need a staff anymore. Why? He's giving up. Elijah is leaving the ministry. I'm done. That's it. It's over. I'm letting my staff go, and I am out of here. Elijah is despairing, depressed, and wants to die. But, but notice in the text, he does not presume to take his own life. Uh, he has this understanding that even if he wants to die, life comes from God. This is a big enough crowd that there are people in here who have thought of suicide. This is a big enough crowd that there are people in here who have tried suicide. In the Bible, people get to those dark places. Um, but they do not presume to have the right to take a life, even their own, because it belongs to God. And what amazes me about this story is Elijah gets to this deep depression right after what I might call the biggest victory in the history of victories, right? Okay, yesterday he called down fire from heaven and he killed most of his enemies. Today he tucks his tail between his legs and he runs south to get out of the country. And I think that is stupid. Anybody? Is that kind of stupid? You just had the greatest victory of your life and you're running? Except I've lived long enough to know that it's not that stupid. That I have done sometimes the same things. Sometimes I have been my most oppressed after my greatest moments. Anybody feel the lull right after Christmas? Right? The high of Christmas and then you get into blah of January. Okay? Um, we go through these lulls. We go through, and they don't always make sense. And my own exp experience with anxiety and depression tells me that it doesn't always make sense. It seems to just come. Come at least opportune times when I least expect it. Still, there's still a lot of scientists who don't know about anxiety and depression, but, but we can say a couple things. We know that anxiety and depression are both nature and nurture. We know that some of it you learn from your family and your life experiences. Okay? that it tends to run in families. And sometimes the way we get anxious and the way we worry and then the way we crash and get depressed, we learn from our parents or we learn from other figures in our life. But we also know that there's a nature component, that there's some chemical things that happen in your brain that cause you to get depressed and anxious. Anxiety, you might think about, is when you get too worked up and worried. 
when your stress response that I talked about last week gets overexcited and you get worried about everything. You've been at these points? Okay? Depression is almost the opposite. It's when you have nothing left, when you can't even have a stress response, when you can't even get excited about basic things. And they don't always make sense. And if you've ever been through them, and I've had two periods in my life when I've gone through kind of year-long bouts of this stuff, um, and I have in my life moments and, and weeks where I get sort of melancholy, melancholy and I, I go through these. But if you've ever been there, it's not, it doesn't always make sense. And you think you can just chip her up and go for it, and it doesn't tend to work that way. And the two are related, I think. A lot of times what I have found in my own life is I get really anxious about stuff until I can't get anxious anymore and then I just shut down and I'm depressed. Elijah is at this point and he runs. And he finds comfort under a broom tree. This is a broom tree. Um, you can see the great shade. And notice in the background of this picture how much there isn't shade anywhere else but the broom tree. <laughs> Okay, this is what broom trees are known for. Okay, and you can imagine being stressed and running and being in the heat of the wilderness and finding one of these trees and plopping down right underneath it to try to rest. The Bible says an angel comes and uh, treats Elijah in this moment. What's interesting is this is unlike any other angelic experience that you can find in the Bible. Okay? Angels come and they sing Gloria. Angels come and they give message. What does this angel do? Cooks. This angel comes and calls Elijah by name, puts a hand on his shoulder, tells him to rest, and then cooks for him. See, God understands in the Bible what it means to be burnt out. What it means when you're anxious and depressed. And you know what sometimes you need? Sometimes you need a nap. Sometimes you need a good meal. Sometimes you need to know you're not alone and somebody to just put their hand on your shoulder. Look at the tenderness that God has for Elijah in this moment. In a moment where he really has every right to be mad at Elijah, right? Okay, I just brought fire from heaven for you. Okay, I just ended a three-year drought for you. But instead of being mad, God comes alongside and is so tender. The angel tells Elijah to go to Mount Horeb you may not know that name, Mount Horeb, but its other name is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the place where Moses would go to be with God, where Moses got the Ten Commandments, and where in a very similar fashion, when Moses wanted to see God, Moses was put in the cleft of the, of the, of the mountain. So perhaps Elijah is in the same place on the mountain that, Eli that Moses had been around God. And it takes him how long to get there? Forty days. 40 days is this number of preparation where Elijah is traveling to get prepared to meet God. When he gets there, God asks him what he is doing there. I love that. As if God doesn't already know. Okay? One of the things that author Tim Keller points out is that when God asks questions, he doesn't ask questions to find information. Right? He asks questions so we get information. Okay? So when he asked Elijah, what are you doing here? And I wonder if the tone was really, what are you doing here? <laughs> what he's really trying to do is get Elijah to wonder about what he is doing there. And so Elijah gives this rant. 
Right? And maybe God also knew Elijah needed to get it off his chest. Maybe God knew not only is he physically weak, but he is mentally struggling and needs to talk to somebody. So Elijah gives this rant. Lord, I have been zealous for you. I have worked my butt off. I feel like I'm the only one. And it didn't work. They're all to get me. Often this is the impression we get when we get anxious or depressed, right? We're not real logical. Okay? And we feel alone. So God puts him in the cleft of the rock. Maybe the same cleft of the rock where he had put uh, Moses before. And hurricane winds come through, but the text says God is not in the wind. There's a major earthquake and rocks fall from everywhere, but God is not in the earthquake. Then fire pours through that part of the mountain, searing the rocks and burning up any vegetation. But God is not in the fire. Then there is a low whisper. Many of you can remember the language of the King James Version, a still, small voice. When Elijah hears it, he covers his face and comes out uh, because that is where the Lord's presence is. Now, what is going on here? Well, let's be clear. God sent all those things. It wasn't just accidentally wind and then accidentally an earthquake and then just happened to be fire coming through. And let's also say that God has used all of those things. At the end of Job and at Pentecost, God comes as wind. When the people are on Mount Sinai, they hear God as an earthquake. And for heaven's sakes, not only does God lead the people as a pillar of fire, but in the previous chapter, God used fire to show everybody who was in charge. God can certainly use wind, earth, and fire. But here, he comes in this still small voice. And it's a very hard phrase to, to, uh, phrase to translate. King James Version renders it a still small voice. The ESV, you heard, the sound of a low whisper. And then the NRSV puts it a sound of sheer silence. It's this really weird Hebrew phrase nobody's quite sure what to do with. But it is this awesome, sudden presence of God that's almost inaudible, but so powerful you can just, you can kind of taste it, you can kind of hear it. What Elijah has to learn is that what's really important isn't the fire, it's God's presence. What's really important isn't the earthquake, it's God's presence. And if you take the fire and you don't have God's presence, it's just fire. But if all you have is God's presence and you don't have fire, you still have something mighty, potent, and powerful. See, Elijah is despairing. Why? Because ultimately God didn't follow his plan. Okay, I love how Timothy Keller puts this. God has not let Elijah down. Elijah's plan has let him down. And Elijah had identified God with his plan. Let me explain that. Okay? God hadn't let Elijah down. Elijah had this whole plan of how this thing was going to go and how the victory was going to be had. And uh, Elijah's plan had let Elijah down. Not God. But God assumed that, a God, that Elijah assumed that God was in favor of his plan. This we can all identify with, right? How often have we had a plan about how we thought this was going to go? And God, we thought, we, we talked about this, God, right? I laid this out. I told you how this was going to go. And God is like, 
That's not your plan. That's not my plan. That's your plan. Because God is not on call to our wishes. Our God is not an on-demand God. And there is a difference between being zealous for God and doing stuff for God and actually doing stuff with God. Sometimes we can get so excited about doing stuff for God that we leave God out of it when it's just us doing it. And the problem is God does not follow our expectations. Just when you think God is going to bring fire, he brings a whisper. Just when you think an earthquake is coming, the wind starts to pick up. He doesn't seem to care about your expectations. And that gets us mad. And really, honestly, that gets us anxious. And after a while, that gets us depressed. Because God doesn't do it the way we want him to do it. But that doesn't mean that God has a plan. If you were to keep reading into all these tongue-twisting names, you'd find that God has a plan. That he's got other people that he's going to anoint. He's going to anoint a new king. Except that king's not even going to be a uh, Jewish king. He's going to be a pagan king. And there are 7,000 people, he says, that haven't bowed down to Baal or kissed the idol. God says, you think you're the only one? You're not the only one. There's 7,000 more. There's way more of you than you ever thought. And God's going to give Elisha. And Elisha is going to come up and have the power and the spirit of Elijah. And he's going to continue his prophetic ministry. And what should stand out to us most in this passage is the amazing, relentless tenderness that God has for Elijah, even in his depression, even as he runs away from God. But instead of being upset with God, Elijah, God cares for him. Uh, Elijah doesn't have any right to be mad at the God who would bring fire from the sky. And God has every right at this point to bring fire from the sky and just take Elijah out the way he did. You know, the way he took away those altars. But instead, he comes to him with food, with a gentle touch, with a whisper, and he starts to build Elijah's strength back. It is not God's nature, we know this from Jesus, it is not God's nature to get mad at us when we suffer and when we are in pain and when we are depressed and anxious. It is God's nature, we find in Jesus Christ, to enter our pain and suffering and to suffer on our behalf. So whatever weights you're going through, whatever shadow lands you're in, whatever kind of battles you've had with depression and anxiety, take heart. I know it may feel like an earthquake, but remember that you're listening for a whisper. It may feel like fire, but remember what you ultimately need is God's presence. Whatever you have done, whatever mistakes you have made, whatever wounds you have, however dark your world has gotten at times, it is my prayer today that you would hear the relentless tenderness of God's whisper in your life. Amen.